Hello and welcome to Real Talk, a real estate podcast that is focused on the people who work in this industry. My name is Harvey Coker with the Officer Street Partners real estate team at Cascade Hassan Sotheby's International Realty in Vancouver, Washington, and I'm so excited to bring this podcast to you. Each week, I will be speaking with different agents and people in the industry to hear all about them, who they are, their experiences, their stories, why they do what they do, and how they are adapting to an ever-changing landscape. This week, I sit down with Matt Brown, a broker who works in both the Portland and Southwest Washington markets. Matt is originally from Kelso, Washington, and began his career in real estate at the Hassan Company after some time spent as a professional musician. As well as working in real estate, Matt also owns some local businesses in the area and uses those businesses to help the community grow and flourish. Thanks for joining me, mate. I appreciate you coming in and taking some time to sit down and have a little chat about your life in real estate and life outside of real estate and your experiences. Yeah, glad to be here. I appreciate it. So, I mean, let's just start with how things going right now. The last couple of weeks, how you been feeling in the market? How you been feeling about what's happening for your buyers, for your sellers, those kind of things? How things been going? Well, I'm supposed to uh, tell you everything's awesome and we're just slaying (laughs) and it's great. Um, But, uh, you know, the last few weeks there's been, uh, there's a lot of fear. Yeah. And everybody's scared and everybody's worried and everybody's, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people are out there thinking that maybe they made the wrong choice. Maybe they shouldn't move. Maybe they should rent instead. Um, as I was doing open houses, and I think I, I told this uh, to you before, but doing open houses and having other sellers, people's clients coming into my open houses to see what I was doing to compare me to their their realtor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of these homes, they've only been on the market for three days. Yeah. And people were like, maybe I should pull it off the market. They're freaking out. So They're quickly. freaking out. They are freaking out. <clears throat> and um, I don't, I genuinely don't think that uh, most people will recover from the market that we had no. mentally for a while. I think it's going to take some serious time here because it was so night and day different. Right. Last year was, it's hot, it's hot, it's hot. Next day, it's not. Right. It's dead. No one's looking to move right now. Sellers are stuck. Um, I think that's going to be a challenge that we see for a while. I had it described to me yesterday by a lender. He was talking about it as a bathtub market. So the idea being instead of a everything falls and then it comes back up, instead it's a, a, a decline and then a long flat. <laughs> and we don't know and it's we're going to actually come up the other side of the tub. Yeah. And I I see that. I, I hear it in my clients' voices even when they're not meaning to, like, get that dramatic. Mm-hmm. You can hear it. there's a fear. Um. I have a listing in Northeast Portland right now that's been on the market for 18 days, and my sellers are in full panic. And we're having showings. Panic? The 18 days. 18 days. Uh, And we're having showings all the time. It's going really well. I mean, for for a listing agent, other than having good offers in hand, this is everything you want. Yeah. And so I'm – like every other day, we're going through the stats again together to remind them – Average days on market for that part of town for this price point is over 50 days. No reason to worry. I think that's what people are um, not realizing, that it changed so drastically with average days on market in such a short period of time. Um, But it's funny you say that because I had two polar opposite listings after the market changed last year. Okay. Where I had one seller who was doing the same thing. 
they were just completely freaking out from day one being on the market. And then I had another seller who actually had less activity than the others because they're on five acres, it's a different property, but they understood what I was telling them that they're in a different market to most homes anyway. Now the market's shifted. You're in an even more different market at this point. And they were just fine. That sounds good. (laughs) They were so relaxed about it. It was unbelievable. I was almost concerned that they were too relaxed about it at this point. And I was trying to every week give them a rundown. They're like, no, we're good. Yeah. Okay, sure. If that's what, if that's how you want to take it, I'm totally fine with that. I had a, a listing. Now it's probably been two years ago, um, where the market was much better. But it was uh, a custom home in a neighborhood uh, that was it was the only custom home, and it had a pool. It, it was bigger. Floor plan was better. Location was better. So its price point was higher than all the other homes. And. <clears throat> And it has a pool. And in the Northwest, we don't have pools. So I was about to ask, did you know if the sellers even use that pool? Because she used it all the time. All the time? All the time. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> she had a whole whole routine for, for keeping it clean and, and maintained. But that scared Northwest buyers. Yes, 100%. They freak out. Like, if the idea of a pool and the maintenance, they don't understand. It's not like California where everybody has a pool. Not everybody, but a lot. Um, and the house... Uh, people come in, they love it, they want it, they won't buy it because of the pool. Because of the pool. And that we had that story over and over and over and over again. Um, and my seller was the best. She was like, I'm not worried. I see the work you're doing. It was basically like getting a hug from your grandma. Like <laughs> She was so rad about the fact that like we weren't getting it, and I felt like I was letting her down. Mm-hmm. Um, but she was always upbeat, and she was like, I understand. You told me at the beginning the pool is going to be a challenge. It's not for everybody. So question off that then, because um, I love hearing different experiences. I have not listed a house with a pool. Um, they are very hard to come by unless most of the time, if you're selling one, two, three million dollar homes in you know, the Parklands or some of those kind of neighborhoods, yeah. then perhaps. How did you approach that from the listing standpoint in the conversations with the other agents coming in? Because that's something completely different than we normally face. Right. Um, I knew it was going to be an issue. Um, and so one of the big things that we did right up front was we put together a document that had her entire cleaning schedule Mm -hmm. with links to all the products and YouTube videos for how to do it. Um, and then I went through and I got three, uh, pool cleaning companies in Portland, uh, three different companies to give me bids on what it would cost for them to do it. Okay. And I put that in the document. So everybody right up front got to see that taking care of that pool was actually really easy. The last link that I put on there was for one of those robotic pool cleaners. Yeah. And I was like, and if you're really lazy, you can just buy one of these. Um, <laughs> so I was a lifeguard years ago yeah. back home, um, and it was a, a local swimming pool. Okay. And I loved that robot because yeah. it meant I didn't have to go and clean the pool. Yeah. Uh, in such a small town, I was basically half lifeguard, half cleaner. Yeah. And it was terrible. So um, I would love when they got that robot cleaner. I absolutely loved it. So I was a uh, I was a lifeguard from 1997 uh, to 2000, and there was no robots. No robots. It was just me, just me cleaning. But um, but uh, yeah, the the robot is uh, ideal. But just take away the question marks. Mm -hmm. Make it so easy. Because when I first had the list and I looked at the cleaning list, I went, I could do that, no problem. But that's literally my personality type is like, I'll figure it out. 
Um, most people aren't that way. So give them the links. Show them how much it'll cost. What's the annual costs? Um, and we just put it all in this document and we sent it out to everybody. So um, we didn't have people coming back and going, oh, I don't know. Like, is the process really hard and having to stumble through it? It was already done. Already done. I think that's a big thing, uh, just taking away question question marks, question points yeah. about homes, eliminating the um, those unknown variables at that point for particularly for special listings yeah as well um i think i said what about buyers right now how are you feeling with buyer clients um buyer clients are also scared um i'm finding that we need to be checking in um every single week with their lenders mm-hmm. um conditions change just that fast and a lot of buyers are on the line they everything's telling them this is one of the things that i get feedback all the time is uh with younger buyers they're going, social media is telling me that I'm never going to own a home. They're telling me this is the worst market for buying a home that there has ever been, which there isn't. When I bought my first home, it was worse than now. Yeah. So, um, But they're, they're getting inundated with things that aren't actually reflected in our market. Yeah. Um, there is a don't, don't settle right now kind of vibe that's going out there. And so a lot of them, uh, I see that they're thinking about other towns, other places to go to. All that makes it really hard if you're trying to get somebody to pull the trigger. It's funny you say that because yesterday I met with some clients in our Camus office mm-hmm. and I sat down with them and they moved here from Tasmania oh, wow. two months ago. And they moved into an apartment and they've lived, they're French. Mm-hmm. They lived in Colorado. Then they moved to Portugal. Then they moved to Tasmania. And they decided they wanted to move back here. Well, I say back here. They've never lived in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. But they moved here and they decided they want to have their dream house here with their three kids. There has not been one single home on the market in the last two months since they moved here. Yep. And they're looking at it. And we had a conversation yesterday that the best decision for them right now is to rent for a year because they save so much money with their salary every month that it pushes them up. 150, 200,000 price point by next year. That's incredible. So they'll be pushing to a million, 1.2. Right. Which at that, it's a different market. Yeah. And the options then are completely different. Right. But if you're talking waiting in the four, 500 range, that's tricky right yeah. now because we are lowest inventory around. Yep. Um, but still, it's tricky. Uh, the social media mm-hmm. side of it. I have gripes with some of that stuff that I talk to people all the time. Like you said, the misinformation. Yep. I think the biggest one that I see right now is when people are putting something out there to say how easy it is to say start investing yep. in real estate. Like there's there's one channel out there, won't name it. Um, I had a client specifically come to me and ask me because of what this guy said. And he basically said, don't invest anywhere other than the Midwest right now if you're doing investment properties. He goes, go to the Midwest, home prices are cheap. All you have to do is look on Redfin, look on Zillow, find a property for around 125000 find a lender that will finance it, get it under contract. And he's, he's laying out oh, yeah, like easy. a six-step easy process. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost as if social media right now is telling people it's either overcomplicating it or undercomplicating it. Yeah. And how are you finding that battle right now with people? Because... It's so easy to access all this information so quickly, yet a lot of it's not true. I think um, I am finding I, I'm finding both from what I hear from my clients and also what I'm seeing out there uh, as I'm watching what what are other people doing and what's content like. 
Um, I think one of the big things that I'm seeing is people are lying and it's almost like a desperate lie. <laughs> Their business isn't actually um, the podcast that they're doing, the Instagram channel that they have, the TikToks that they're throwing out. Their business is something to the side of that. So they're they're trying to portray that things are really great. Mm-hmm. And if you're just with them, things will be really great for you too. <clears throat> then you kind of do some looking and you find out, oh, that person actually has no experience in this field at all. <laughs> you know, um, it's it's interesting to see um, this almost, I don't want to say manic, but it has a wrong, the energy's wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, like when you, you play, uh, did you do sports growing up? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So oh, rugby. Yeah. Name it. I'm going to say it wrong. Soccer. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) I was a big soccer guy. And when you win and you win clean, like there's, there's no question, but you win clean, you feel great. Yeah. But when you barely eke it out, like that's not the same type of win. (laughs) And you can hear a lot of these folks in their podcasts and their interviews or online and they're doing these videos and they sound like they're just barely holding it together (laughs) and that they really need you to think they're happy. Um, I'm very, um, sensitive to that mm-hmm. as just kind of a BS filter. Yeah. You know, like what's, um, what's authentic and what's not. My clients aren't the same way cause they're not in the industry. Mm-hmm. They don't know. Um, right now I have a brilliant client. He's an engineer. Um, he moved to the Northwest. He's an immigrant, just 10 times smarter than I am. Unfortunately, he keeps web MDing everything about real estate. Oh, God. <laughs> and he knows right now he just needs to find that duplex that he can live in one side and rent the other side and everything will work out and that he can get the rents that he needs to pull it off. And it's, it's, it's no problem. You just find the renter that will pay the amount that you need so it all works. So yeah. it, he can look simple, at it. Simple, right? It's just it's simple. so simple. It's so easy to do. Everybody can do it tomorrow. Everybody can do it tomorrow. Everybody's got a really, I mean, it's a very clean, easy spreadsheet for figuring out if you're going to make money or lose money, but he can't figure out the parts that, okay, this, you know, property we looked at, excuse me, $800,000. There's no renter in that area that's going to pay the rent you need to pay your mortgage for you. Mm -hmm. Somebody who can afford that is going to buy the $800,000. Buy the house at that point. You're going to buy the house. Right. And uh, I had this conversation with quite a few people recently, and they keep, they had the same idea as well. And they keep saying, oh, I'll buy a fourplex and live in. Okay. Where's the fourplex? Where's the fourplex? Where is it right now? They all sold in 2020 and 2021. And anything that's, I don't even want to say half decent right now, but what you have to pay for something like that. And then the cash you have to put into it, good luck finding rent to cover what you're putting into that right. place in the first four years right. kind of thing. Um, it's a real interesting discussion at the moment. Uh, <clears throat> so, as you know, I own some coffee shops. Mm-hmm. And this morning, I'm on LoopNet. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with LoopNet. So I'm on LoopNet, and I see one of my rivals' uh, coffee shops okay. in one of the pictures. Okay. The building's for sale. I won't get too specific because I don't want to expose anything, but the building's for sale. The price of the building and the condition of the building make it impractical for any investor to buy. Mm-hmm. 
there's an uh, sellers are still thinking the premiums out there. They're still thinking uh, people will fight to the death for those types of properties, mm-hmm. and they're not doing the math. I'm sorry. I can I can look online and see when you bought it and how much you paid for it, and so can every other investor. It takes two seconds. It's it takes not two difficult. seconds. You can figure out what rents are going for in the area. Mm-hmm. So if you got a tenant in there, like you immediately do the math and you go, oh, so twenty years I might make something from this. Like the area that that location's in isn't going faster than everywhere else. Uh, uh, there's just. There's not the the data the and the population to support it, and I see that and I go, oh, that's a bad place to be in. Yeah, because that price is going to keep dropping, and then the folks that own that coffee shop might end up with a landlord who is um, thrifty. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> not willing <laughs> to do the work. It, yeah, it's so interesting to see the difference between um, kind of the investment market right now and single family market as well. Yeah, um, because. I've said from towards the end of last year to now, and I, I still say it every day at the moment, true value is selling at true value. Yeah. But the problem is, I think a lot of people's perception of true value has changed so drastically yep. in the last eight, nine months yep. that um, I don't think people really know where it lies for a lot of times. And I'll, I'll take one for an example. Um, there was some people came to us in November, mm-hmm. said, uh, they talked to the agent who helped them buy the house. The agent walked through the door and said, well, this house sold for that. This house sold for that. So you need to list at this. And I, what I did is went online and I looked at one of those homes. This house was so much better. <laughs> it, like, it wasn't even close. What he'd done to this house, the yard space, just everything. And you see some homes out there. And I think it then plays into the fear of the market dying, the market collapsing when you see these right. price shots because people are saying, Prices are coming down. Prices are coming down. No, they're not. Incorrect prices are coming down. Poorly marketed homes are, are coming, coming down. down. That's what's happening. We put that house on at six fifteen. We got four offers in the first three days above asking price. That's fantastic. Because it was true value at that yeah. point, and and that's a huge part of it. And we've lost listings. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've lost them too, but we've lost some in the last year where I've flat out said in the room, I will not list it at that price unless these conditions are met because this is a waste of time here for everybody involved. And I'm promising something that cannot be delivered. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that recently at all because I've seen that in, when you talk about the true values, the true value, right. Um, or true price is the true price. Yeah. I, I frame it for, for people a little bit differently. And so when we think about pricing, we can do a couple of things. We can do a move it fast, just sell it, ship it, the ship it price, which is you undervalue it on purpose mm-hmm. and you just get it, you get it out the door. You're not going to make as much money. It's for the person who has to move no matter what. Um, or you do the, what I call the appraiser's best friend. <laughs> I like the, I like that. Right. I like the way of putting it. And that allows me by putting it that way, it allows me to have that conversation about we can price it up here, but the price, you know, way high and we might get an offer, but we might also have to walk that back. Yeah. Because we're so away from what value shows in that area, right? Yeah. And then I go, I go. So if you want to go high, let's do it. We call it the puncher, puncher's chance. Yep. Right. So in boxing, that means it doesn't matter until the fight's done. One guy could throw one, one punch, punch, no matter how bad he's losing, and he could get it. Yep. And that happens occasionally. I use that as an example sometimes. It's kind of the same analogy. Yeah. So last spring, I had some buyers who bought a house for one point four. 
um, up on the the center exit, yep. Ridgefield address up there. But to to buy that house, they had to sell their house for nine fifty. Okay. They had just had an appraisal seven months before, and the appraisal came in at eight twenty five. Oh, dude. Now, thankfully, the market hadn't shifted at this point. But I said, if you have to sell it, and this is your dream house, let's list it at nine fifty and see what happens. They sold at one point one. Yes. And the appraisal hit at one point one. Which, bearing in mind, um, there was fifty thousand dollar difference between that offer and the second best offer. Mm-hmm. I have no idea where the appraiser got his number from because there was nothing that supported that. That might have helped too. Five offers, two of them at asking price at nine fifty, another at nine seven five, one at a million twenty five, and then this guy winning at one point one and it appraised at one point one. Wow. The good thing with that was the guy who missed it at a million twenty five. The neighbor across the street called me and said, hey, I want to sell it. But it was after the market had changed. Yeah. I said, guys, it's not that. Like, your number's 900. Yeah. And it had a bedroom less. It was a little bit smaller, too. So let's see what this guy will do. And he came in at a million twenty-five. Wow. Bridged the appraisal gap. Yeah. <laughs> and he did it. And that's the puncher's chance. Yep. That's it the puncher's chance where it can happen. The downside is sellers are holding on to that. Yeah. And they're grasping firm with that and saying, there's a chance. It's such a over the top story to hear when you your neighbor tells you, "Yeah, I got this." Right. And that sticks in their brain harder than all the negative. Oh, it does. Which is hilarious because when you think about reviews in general, it's normally the negative that sticks in people's brains. Yeah. But it, it's almost a a flaw in our psychology that when it comes to money we might be able to have it's like the idea of winning the lotto. <laughs> you know, like I've spent too much money on lottery tickets in my life. Well, what's the saying? Like, you almost die, right? And, like, just by chance, you step out of the way and a car went by. And people are like, go buy that lottery ticket. And people do that. They actually do that when everything says, and they know it, too. Everything says, don't do that. It's just a waste of money. It's a waste of money. (laughs) It's a waste of money. But you hear that story, especially if it's anything remotely like you. So the the condition could be it's somebody that's at your work, so Mm -hmm. they're just like you. Even though you don't know where they live, but it's somebody up here or it's in the same neighborhood. And you go, well, my house is in this neighborhood, like the house with the pool that I was describing. That house was so much better than all the other houses. It's a completely different price point. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's it's funny how people get lost in those numbers and start telling them things and then looking up things that agree with them online. Mm-hmm. That's that web MD yeah. things that you just are too technical to. I saw a video and it stuck in my head ever since then. And it was, uh, this guy was just recording himself in the car and he goes, there's so much information out there that it's fact and alternate fact. And he goes, I bet I can find something that says, um, coffee increases my, my vision or whatever. And he went online and he found it and he goes, but I also bet I can find something that says coffee makes your vision worse over time. And he found that as well. And he goes, you can literally just find anything to confirm what you think yep. at that point and then try and use it as fact yep. going forward. And um, when you start talking about the real estate market, that's a dangerous game to play oh. because that's people's most valuable asset. Yeah. It's their livelihood at yep. that point. And um the issue then is if you list it incorrectly and you do it completely wrong, there's a little bit of a black mark against that house yep. on the market. And even when you start coming down a price point, it's the first thing a buyer's going to do. Let's get it even cheaper. Yep, always. Let's get it even cheaper. There's a deal to be made. It's the blood in the water. Yeah. 
And I think because interest rates have risen so much that that's the the hunt that people are on and they don't understand it's um if you go to a market where there really aren't a lot of buyers you're you, the chances that you can get a deal are great right like the the midwest which i want to invest there but <laughs> <laughs> you know it's uh you you can do that but that's not here that's not yeah. the northwest that's no. not what we're experiencing and this idea of a of a deal well the value of the home still holds. There is a threshold people just aren't going to go under. Yeah. Um, client, same gentleman with the duplex, when we first started, wanted to start conversations with everybody 150 lower than what they're listing it as mm-hmm. on day one that it hit the market. Day one. Day one. <laughs> and that was the kind of the some of the cultural difference okay. was we're not in a negotiation on day one, mm-hmm. 150 under. It's funny you say that because uh, so we had a client last start of last year, very early last year, or even going into the year before, um, and he called it his negotiation strategy. So um, he had a plan. He had, he had a plan. Yeah, he had a plan. Um, Ashley Heights, okay, up there, right? It's a house that comes on the market. It's eight hundred thousand. He goes, it's day one. He goes, I want to offer seven hundred. Why? <clears throat> why would you do that? You're going to get laughed out the door. Like they're not even going to respond to you. And he goes, well, it's my negotiation starting point. That doesn't exist. That doesn't work. That doesn't work that way. Yeah. They were only looking in three of the most popular areas mm-hmm. in Philida and South Ridgefield mm-hmm. out there. And I'm sitting there thinking, what's going on? Like, he did this with five homes yeah. in a row. Oh. And we tried talking to him and saying, hey, you got to stop because this is... At uh, some point, it kind of starts reflecting on you as an agent too. Oh yeah, in that sense, because we have to, we do what our clients want us to do. Right. At the same time, we ended up parting ways with that client too because we just felt like it was never going to be a success story for anybody. Right. In that way, which I, I doubt it ever has been. If they hired someone else, I don't know. But um, there's there's basic rules in acquisitions, right? Whether it's buying a house or um, trying to get a deal on uh, T-shirts for your printing press. The, the basic rules, right? We all know them, supply and demand, of course. Yeah. But you have to be needed by the person who's selling the thing in order to throw out an anchor price that's insulting. <laughs> they need you. They, they, there has to be some sort of appeal. Yeah. And unfortunately, we just came out of a market where – uh, it was spoken about in the news, social media, in every workplace. The sellers did not need any one buyer because there was a lot of buyers. Mm-hmm. Now there's not a lot of buyers, but the mentality is still wrong, which is people people aren't going to throw away $100,000 just because you might be the only one who talks to them today. Yeah. They're not going to do it. They're going to wait. Yeah. If they're going to do that, they're, they're not going to settle, like you said, that um what's going on right now those conversations of it's they're not going to settle and right. yes i think at different price points you know i just got a buyer into the a 425 at that point and there are situations where it's not that you have to settle but there are some things you have to um you know settle for i don't, I don't want to say settle for um but you have to give up in some way, you know, at that point, it's not going to be, you're not going to go into a house at 400 and it's going to have a big open farmhouse kitchen with a big kitchen island. 
and quartz countertops and you're going to get it brand at Brand new prices. appliances. Yeah, brand new appliances. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, so there's some concessions yeah. somewhere at certain price points, but um, I think we're going to see a battle for a while in mentality. I agree. And I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. No. I the The one thing that I'm hoping we can conquer is this uprise in folks thinking that um, giving up on the idea of home ownership mm-hmm. and deciding to rent. Yeah. And if we can get the conversation going where they can also see that rent prices are just going to keep going up and up and up and that they're how much money they're losing. And I know it's such a basic concept, but it's getting drowned out right now. Yeah. And to see people who are, you know, I think about business owners all the time because I am one. Yeah. When you decide to open a brick and mortar, you have to sign a lease. And a lot of the leases, uh, you know, for restaurants, they're uh, maybe a five-year with uh, two five-year extensions. Okay? That means that if you sign that lease, you're signing up to stay in the same place for five years. A really great starting point for thinking about reselling your home is around that five-year mark. Yeah. Gets a lot better if you're in there for 10. So you make it five. Now you know your business can work. You do another five. Now you would have been in your home for 10 years. And most of these business owners rent. I want to scream this from the mountaintops. <laughs> that At 10 years, if you decide to sell or close your business to go do something else, if you would have bought your home, you could use that equity to start the next thing. Yep. And instead, I watch these brilliant chefs, um, uh, bakers, you know, people who have wonderful visions close their businesses with nothing and they're still in their apartment they started in. Mm-hmm. Breaks my heart. That's rough, particularly, you know, with your background now, you know, going into those coffees. Tell me, tell me about that because um, tell me about your journey in that. You have how many coffee shops now? Four. Four coffee shops. Anything else? Well, um, one of the coffee shops is, is technically like a breakfast cafe. Okay. So it's a full restaurant. Okay. So how did that all come about? Because that's quite a, a jump. That's quite the jump. Quite the um, jump. It actually is one of the only things that makes sense in my journey, actually. Okay. So um, in 2008, I was preparing um, to go to the University of Wisconsin to get my master's in education. The economy fell apart, and I got a phone call from the head of my cohort, and he was like, do you really want to double your debt with a family? And then get a job where you're only going to get part-time work and at best might make $25,000 a year. I was like, oh. When you say it like that, I don't know if I do. And this was one month before I was going to start that master's work. Um, That happened and I decided not to do it. And two months later, uh, the economy starts to turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife gets laid off from her job and loses our health insurance. She's pregnant. Oh, boy. So I'm not going to school. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I, I, I work in coffee. I'm a barista, and I am a professional musician, but you only go on tour certain parts of the year. Mm-hmm. So if you're not on tour, you're not making money. Yeah. So I knew that I had to make a shift, and I reached out. Um, I had lots of history with Stumptown Coffee Roasters, and I reached out to their leadership team and I said, I know you guys have insurance. I could really use a job. Can we talk? And luckily, um, because of my history with them and uh, right time, right place, uh, 
they set me down in a in an English pub at the horse grass. Oh, Portland, the horse grass, yeah. At the horse grass. And we sat down in the corner with the entire leadership team, and they said, what do you want to do? And they let me pick my job. And I went over there and I uh, to become an account representative. I had 600 accounts in Portland, and my entire job wasn't to sell them coffee, but to make their shops more profitable so that they would buy more coffee okay. because they had because they would be thriving. Yeah. Right. So it's an indirect sales. Yeah. Um, I loved it. I loved getting to get behind the scenes and see what people were doing with their businesses and help them see success where they didn't have it before. I still love that today. <laughs> um, but I did that. Uh, with Stumptown, they ended up getting bought. And there was a culture change. Yeah. It wasn't exactly a rock and roll culture change. And I'm very rock and roll. <laughs> um, so luckily, um, an opportunity opened up for me to take over sales for Cova Coffee Roasters in Portland. Um, during this time of working with all these coffee shops, this is inappropriate to say, but I kind of decided that all small business owners are crazy. <laughs> and I said, I'm never going to own a coffee shop. Just not going to do it. Because I thought the common denominator was coffee people are crazy. Too much caffeine, not enough food, long hours, not great margins, right? <laughs> Seeing the behind the scenes and the mess um, that people make of their businesses, I wasn't really interested. At the same time, my business partner in the coffee shops I own now was the head of education for Stumptown, then came over to Cova, and then when I left Cova, he took over and ran the entire business uh, for eight years. Um, he developed, uh, spreadsheets to, that we could literally go into any coffee shop, plug in their numbers for them, and it would calculate where they're, they're losing all their money essentially. Cause okay. very few, very few of them came out as like, obvious, like you're making a lot of money. Making a lot of money. You're, yeah. You're different. Yeah, yeah. You're different. And that spreadsheet meant that anytime a coffee shop went up for sale, um, uh, there's a website called Biz Buy Sell, and you can see all the businesses that are for sale in the area. Anytime one went up, we could sign the NDA, we could get the numbers back, and we, in, in 24 hours or less, could know if it was a viable business. Thought we would do that helping other people buy. Um, <clears throat> during that same period of time, we opened another business called Mini Mini. It was a new school convenience store. Uh, East side, Burnside, uh, right in the heart of everything. Really cool concept. None of the garbage food, only nice, fun stuff. Okay. High design, big splash was in the national news. People wanted us open in New York and Seattle and LA. <clears throat> and we were trying to think of the timeline here. So we got held up with many, many with the city. And I thought that it wasn't going to happen because okay. it's harder to open a convenience store in Portland than it is to open a strip club in Portland. <laughs> There's <laughs> more regulations. A, that's such a Portland statement right there. But it's true. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we got held up with something. I, I thought it was never, we were never going to get the doors open. And I told my, my buddy, I, I don't know if I can keep holding on on this thing. And he said, well, let's go have guys night and guys night for us involved uh, going to a Mexican restaurant in St. John's, going to the movies, going back to the Mexican restaurant and eating again. We love it. It's a, it's a, a little restaurant in the back of a, a Mexican grocery store, and it's just delicious. 
And so that's what we would do to like blow off steam and not work. You know, we parked in front of a coffee shop that had a sign on the window that said, we just had our baby. We're closing for good. We're moving to Chicago. My buddy uh, goes, maybe I should just email, see what they're doing with the space. Yeah. Sends them an email. Uh, There's, they're they're open to selling. They're open to like junking it all. Anyways, plugged into the spreadsheet. The numbers were there. I used uh, my portion of the purchase for my home equity line. Mm-hmm. There you go. There you go. There you go. <clears throat> so I was able to take the investment from my first, my well, it's my second home, but at that the home that I was living in, and use that money to purchase this business. That then. Uh, was going to be the side thing just for the neighborhood. How do we have a good coffee shop in this neighborhood that takes care of people that we're proud of, um, that adds something that isn't already there? It wasn't thinking, how do I get ridiculously rich? Because yeah. you can't. On one on one coffee shop, you're not getting that rich. It's not happening. No, it's not it's happening. Not happening. <laughs> um, and uh, we get past the city stuff with the mini mart. We get it open. It goes big time for a year, and then somebody lights it on fire. Actually, they, they lit the bar next to us on fire, but when the fire hit the roof, the condensers oh, from our my. refrigeration pulled it into our business, and we lost that. And we lost the whole thing. And the building owner got in a ton of lawsuits, held us up. We couldn't settle with our insurance, so we couldn't rebuild, couldn't reopen. And that's what killed that business. Oh, we had all the insurance, so we didn't have to pay out. But shoot, right? Yeah. On the side is this little tiny coffee shop in St. John's in North Portland. And it's just cranking. And it's doing well. And in 2020, we are able to get our, our second location. When a, um, a buddy of mine who had a coffee shop in it, he passed away. Um, the people who bought the business didn't want that location. So it hit the market. So we were able to open the second one. At this point, we kind of realized that at scale, um, it's either go big or just know that it's going to stay at this level. Yeah. And we're not going to be able to really do things to benefit our employees. Yeah. And that's when we started looking for a third one. The scale of going bigger gets us closer to being able to get affordable insurance for people. Yeah make a job that is a, a really killer fun time when you're doing something else as well and make it into something that like uh, a single mom could, could work there and still take care of her, her kids. 